We turn in God's Word this evening, the book of Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. As we consider God's words regarding the building of the tabernacle. This morning's message was looking at uh, an example of how God used a tree to speak to us about living life. This evening, God speaks to us about a tree as to how to worship Him as well. So worship and life in this uh, book of Exodus regarding trees. We're now at Mount Sinai. Moses has already received the Ten Commandments. Those have been given. And now the Lord is commanding the people to bring an offering. And that's where we begin. And we're going to read uh, for our passage tonight verses 1 through 22. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it, and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. And you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. Shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat? Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. 
their faces to one another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Thus far, this portion of the reading of the word of God, I invite you to keep the passage open as we'll be coming back to this uh, and other passages later on in our message. Let's bow in a time of prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word, which was read here tonight. We thank you for preserving that word through all the years. And as we read tonight about the acacia wood and the way that it was used, we pray that you'll give Pastor Bob wisdom and that he will be able to give a good account of what he has learned in this week and that he will teach it to us that we too can use that to grow closer to you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we want to look at four things from this passage tonight. First of all, the wood itself, this wood called acacia wood, or if you have an older version, uh, a little bit more difficult pronunciation and term is used, but uh, we'll use it as chatao wood. Others of you perhaps uh, have other renditions in your Bibles, but perhaps Less not said this evening. So we want to look at the wood. Secondly, the command that God gives regarding this. Thirdly, the purpose for which God gives the command. And then finally, three lessons that we can draw in regards to worship from it. For this is what it's all about. All of this that we have read and that which continues into chapter 25 and 26, and 27, and 28, and beyond, are about how God is to be worshipped. And that's what the, the center point of all of this is. And yet, in the midst of that, we read about this particular wood. So the wood, the command, the purpose, and the lessons. First of all, the wood. Now, the first thing to note is that this is to be amongst the gifts that are brought. It's not that the people got to decide what to bring. It's not that the people decided, oh, let's bring God some gold. I'll bet he could use some gold. Well, let's bring him some bronze. Uh, let's bring blue yarn, scarlet yarn. Let's bring some fine twined linen, maybe some onyx stones. Maybe we can make some use of that. Oh, and let's bring some acacia wood. It wasn't the people who decided what to bring. It is God. Now, this is not their tithe. This is an offering. That's why it's referred to here as a contribution. It's a free will offering. And yet God is saying, when you bring the free will offering, because it is going to be for me, because it is going to be for my worship, I am going to specify for you what I want. And of all the items that are brought, one item of wood is mentioned. God doesn't say bring out, you know, ten different kinds of wood. 
bring me some oak, some hickory, bring me some elm, give me some maple, and, and throw in some acacia wood. No, the only wood that God wanted was acacia wood. Secondly, in regards to the wood, let's think about this. It is acacia wood. What, what do we know about acacia wood? Well, there's an old Egyptian proverb, an ancient Egyptian proverb, that predates Exodus chapter 25. So back in Egypt, okay, there was this proverb, and the proverb went as follows. If you lack a gold battle axe inlaid with bronze, a heavy club of acacia wood will do. So if you need a battle axe, something that's strong, something that's hard, if you lack one of bronze and gold, use a piece of acacia wood, it'll get the job done. Now what the ancient Egyptian proverb simply means is this, it's hard. It is a hard wood. From the various types of acacia wood that exist today, Tested, it's about 25% harder than white oak. It is ideal for the purpose of making furniture because it's durable. It is also very weather resistant. Interesting, isn't it? God says, don't bring me some oak. Don't bring me cypress. For, for, for the tabernacle, I want acacia wood, some hardwood out of which, what are they going to basically do? They're going to make furniture. And that furniture is going to be exposed to all sorts of different elements, especially in what God knows is going to be a 40-year journey. It's going to hold up. We know today that there are about a thousand different varieties of acacia wood that exists. However, there is a type of acacia wood that is found in the Sinai Peninsula. In particular, it is found at the base of mountains in hard, stony soil. Where are the Israelites? They're at the base of Mount Sinai. They're where there is hard, stony soil. What grows in hard, stony soil? Acacia wood. Bring me acacia wood. In other words, probably that not which we see today, but that at that time they could have looked around and they said, he just wants acacia wood? But there's another particular reason why. Listen very carefully. Under the leaves of the type of acacia wood that grows on these mountains and at the foothills of these mountains are long thorns, spikes, under the base of every leaf. So if you're going to clear the leaves off, to make ready the wood, you have to encounter the thorns. 
You cannot deal with this type of acacia wood without dealing with the thorns. So after they would take one of these boards and finish it, the place where the thorn was would always show up. You would always see that. Even though you sanded it and rubbed it, perhaps put some finish oil on it, and then overlaid it with gold, but the wood itself would always show that little place where those thorns were coming out of. This is the type of wood that God is asking for. I want this acacia wood, this very hard, dense wood. It's going to be good for the furniture, but you're going to have to be careful how you handle it. You can't treat it haphazardly. But of course, if we stop to think about this, there is already something in our minds that we're probably percolating, isn't it? Hmm, thorns, thorns, thorns. We need worship items. We need wood, wood that has thorns. And if we're thinking and putting together this morning's message with this, we're already at the part where we're thinking about that crown of thorns upon the head of our Lord and Savior. But we'll come back to that. Now, how are they going to use this? This is the only wood that God has asked for. How are they going to use it? Well, we've uncovered part of it, right? Verse 10. You shall make an ark of acacia wood. So the ark, this, this box into which the testimony is going to go, the box on top of which the mercy seat is going to go, which, by the way, is the reason we sang the song about the mercy seat prior to this, and upon which the cherubims are going to go, and then the presence of God is going to dwell above, all of that is on top of this box made of acacia wood. Then we go down, what about the poles? Verse 13, you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Go to chapter 25, verse 23. You shall make a table of acacia wood and then you overlay lay that, verse 24, with gold. Go down to verse 28. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. So we have an ark with poles made of acacia wood. We have a table made with acacia wood and poles that are made of acacia wood as well. Do you get the point? All this furniture, right? So now you go to chapter 26. Verse 15, and now we're dealing with the temple, uh, the tabernacle structure itself. Verse 15, you shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Go down to chapter, verse 26. So the one direction, you have acacia wood. Verse 26, you shall make the bars of acacia wood. So we have the frames and the bars, the structure over which all those coverings are going to go. So the, the structure 
is a wood structure with hides and coverings and cloths on top of it. But the wood structure is all made of this acacia wood. Go with me to chapter 20, or 26, verse 37. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood. This is the entrance to the tabernacle now. So at the entrance of the tabernacle, not, not just that inner court, okay, to the most holy place, but even entering in the very first room, they had five pillars and over that a curtain. Those five pillars, note, are to be made of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Chapter 27, verse 1, and you shall make the altar. Here comes the place of sacrifice. Make the altar of acacia wood which they're going to overlay with bronze. Go to chapter 27, verse 6. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. Now notice, this is not Moses. This is God. This is God saying, this is the way I want the tabernacle built. I want you to use as the wood, acacia wood. Over and over and over again. No change. No other substitutes. One wood and one wood alone. Acacia wood. Acacia wood that comes with thorns upon it. What a reminder to us. Now what's going on? Why, why? So we've got the wood, but some of you may be asking, why if we have the wood, does God always tell them to overlay it? And often it's overlaid with gold. Right? The only time it's not overlaid with gold is when? Is when it's the altar, but the altar is outside of the tabernacle. So everything that's made of acacia wood in is overlaid with gold. Why? What, what's being represented here? Well, if we put into this discussion the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 2, it tells us that the Messiah is going to be a root out of dry ground. Now, why, why, did you ever stop to think, why does Isaiah, why does the Spirit, I guess I should say, lead Isaiah to say that the Messiah is going to be the root out of dry ground? Why isn't it a root out of good soil? Why isn't it wood out of the riverbank? The wood, the root out of dry ground. Is it a reference perhaps here back to this acacia wood? The fact that we're at the base of this mountain with stony, rocky, hard soil and yet up out of that rocky, hard soil grows this acacia wood? 
Is that passage in Isaiah not a reminder to us that it is up out of, as it were, humanity that Christ comes out of the hardness of man's heart? It is a reminder to us, you see, this acacia wood, of the humanity of Jesus. And yet God overlays it with gold, which is a symbol of his divinity. Remember Hebrews? Okay. See, all this works into Hebrews as well. That was a shadow. Even the wood is a shadow. A shadow of what? A shadow of Christ. A shadow of his humanity. A shadow of his divinity. God was laying a most excellent picture before his people. Don't you think those people asked the question, why are we taking this wood and overlaying it with gold? Moses' answer would be, God told us to. God commanded us to. But why? God has a reason. God has a purpose. God is showing us something. God is picturing something for us. And when we come to the book of Hebrews, we understand what it is. He is shadowing the coming of his son. I want acacia wood. That's the wood I want you to use. A root out of dry ground. A tree that has thorns. That's the one I want you to use. For what? What what does he want it for? Make me a sanctuary. That's what he says way back there in chapter 25, right? This is what I want you to do. He asked for the contributions. He told them what he wanted. And then he says, verse 8, and let them make me a sanctuary. A place in which to dwell. A place in which I might take up My presence. And do it exactly as I show you. That that in itself is an interesting statement, isn't it? Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. Not exactly as I write it out for you. Not exactly as I etch it in stone for you. But Moses, I'm going to show you. I'm going to give you a glimpse of this tabernacle that I desire be built for me. And once I show it to you, I want you to build it exactly as you saw it. I don't want you to use any derivations. I don't want you to change a thing. Don't change the type of wool. Don't change the color of yarns. Don't change the materials. Leave it and do it and make it exactly as I show you. Because I want a place to dwell there. 
I want a sanctuary. Now think about what that means. God is desiring to dwell, to tabernacle. That's what the word tabernacle actually means, to dwell. I want to live amongst you. Now think of where we were this morning, right? Exodus chapter 15. The great God who has performed great signs and wonders. This great God of great power, this God of great might, desires to dwell in the midst of his people. God desires to come and to be amongst his people. God. God who has no form. God who is almighty. God who is sovereign. God who is all-knowing. God who is all-holy. God who is all-just. God in all of his attributes is saying to these people, build me a sanctuary that I might come and be in your midst. I don't want to be a God who is far off. I don't want you to think of me as a God who is distant. I don't want you to think about me as, as the, the followers of Baal do, who think they need to yell and cry out and cut themselves and go into all sorts of antics in order to get the attention of their God. I want to be right with you. I want to be close to you. I want to be near to you. I do not want to be a God who is afar off. I want to dwell in the midst of my people. Just, just for a moment, stop and, and appreciate what is happening here. How, how God Is coming to them and dwelling with them in this tent with poles and frames of acacia wood, with furniture built of acacia wood, roots out of dry ground. There. There I will dwell. In order that I can be among you. So what lessons do we take away from this? Three. One. Worship is God-defined. We don't get to make the rules. People of Israel didn't get to make the rules. People of Israel didn't get to decide how God was worshipped and what God desired. God 
decides. God has told us. God has given us exactly how He desires to be worshipped. And that is only through Jesus Christ. See, that's the point of everything that's going to happen in these chapters in Exodus. God gives a command, but His command is to build this tabernacle, which is what? A shadow of Christ. He's saying to us, through them, the only way to worship me is through Jesus Christ. I know we emphasize that. I know I preach that often. But we need to understand that. Someone without Christ cannot worship God. We're, we're into, on Wednesday nights, last, last time we dealt with Hindus. Man, they're passionate about their worship. But they're not worshiping God because there is no Christ. This week we, we deal with Buddhism. They're passionate. They're fervent. But there is no Christ. They're not worshiping God. We know how fervent the Muslim is. But there is no Christ. They're not worshiping God. We know how emotional and passionate the Jew is. But they're not worshiping God because there is no Christ. Without Christ, there is no worship of God. God defines. God defines how we are to worship, and that is through Christ, in Christ, by Christ. Without Christ, none of us worships. If it wasn't for Christ, we could not worship God. It is Christ and Christ alone. There's no other way. There's no other way. See, we often say that in, return, in regards to our salvation, don't we? There is no other way other than Christ. It's Christ alone for our salvation. But it's also Christ alone for our worship. Secondly, a lesson to be learned is the intent of God in worship. God's intent is that he be present. When we worship, God is in the midst. See, when we worship as God intends, which is through Christ, wherever two or three gather in my name, there I am, in the midst of them. That's what's happening when we worship. God 
is in the midst. See, this is, this is not some frivolous thing we're doing. This is not just some meaningless activity. That's why, that's why we have to guard so much against it just being some ritual that we go through, which the, the Jewish people so often fell into and which we can so often fall into. Yep, we come, we sing, we read, we fall asleep during long prayer, uh, we begin to think about work and business during the sermon, and then we sing again and we go home. And, and we, we're not grasping the fact that God is in the midst. Now the question is, how is God in the midst? Well, there's no Shekinah glory dwelling between the cherubim. Right? That, that's how he was present here as we read through the rest of, of Exodus. God, this cloud of Shekinah glory comes and dwells between the cherubim. And then when they pack it up, the, chair, the cloud leaves, right? And then it comes back whenever they set up the, the tabernacle once again. There, there's no Shekinah glory. It's not like we come to church and, oh yeah, this Sunday God was there. Why? Well, there was this big bright cloud behind Pastor Bob. God must have been present that day. God is present by his indwelling spirit in us. Remember that old covenant written on stone? How's that new covenant written? It's written on human hearts. God's presence is not in some kind of glory dwelling between cherubim. God's presence, God's glory is within. Listen to how these verses of the New Testament confirm this and old. Ezekiel 37, 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. 2 Timothy 1.14, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure that has been entrusted to you. Acts 6 verse 5, the statement found approval with a whole congregation and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine for this is dispiation, but be filled with with the Spirit, Romans 8, 11. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells within you. Romans 8, 9. However, you are not of the flesh, but of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. God dwells by the Spirit within us. What an amazing truth. 
But also, by that Spirit, then, we might say as well, we are then God's temples. We are the tabernacles of God. We are the structures that God has built, that God has raised up, that God has given. In order that he might dwell within us. We are the temples of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 6.19 Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? 2 Corinthians 6.16 Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. All that work back there in Exodus comes as a shadow to show us Christ and now do we erect another temple? No. The temple now becomes us. Christ promised to never leave us, to never forsake us. We become his temple. This is why Paul tells us in Corinthians, so that whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, do it all for the glory of God. In other words, all of life, is worship. All of life. Yes, this is corporate worship. This is God's people joining together to bring glory and praise to Him. But as we leave this place, we don't cease to worship. As we leave this place, we take the tent with us. We take the tabernacle with us. We take the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit with us into this world. We live life to glorify Him. But the only way to do so is by Christ. Without that relationship to Christ, without being in Christ, we cannot glorify God. We're apart from Him. But with Christ, we cut our boards, we plaster our ceilings, we paint our walls, we teach our lessons, we write out the checks, we balance the ledgers, we do all for the glory of God. We nurse back to health humans. And animals. We work our careers. We work our jobs. For the glory of God. Why? Because we cannot do otherwise. Because we are the temple of God. And the Spirit dwells 
within. And so when I give that benediction at the end of our services, I say, go and live. Live as God's people. It's go and worship as God's people. Worship Him in all that we do. The lesson of Acacia Wood. And God's people say, Amen. Father, thank you for this reminder in wood of a place where you dwell, a place that you inhabited, a place where your glory shined forth in order to be a shadow of the greatness, the surpassing greatness of the coming of our Lord and Savior, that great high priest, Jesus Christ. But the ongoing blessings that come from the righteousness of Christ is that we become the temples. Oh, Father, let us live for your glory. Let us worship you in the beauty of holiness. In Christ alone. And all God's people say, Amen.